Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I would encourage you to open them to 2 Corinthians. Uh, We're going to be looking at chapters 8 and 9, and yes, in a little over 20 minutes, I'm going to look at two chapters of the Bible. Uh, One phrase maybe to get in our hearts as we uh, approach the preaching of God's Word from Sunday to Sunday is to come to this time with open Bibles and open hearts. Uh, open Bibles because uh, it's just important for us to see God's Word in front of us as the person is standing up in front of us preaching so you can uh, both learn how to read and interpret and apply God's Word so you can also keep me honest and make sure the pastor is coming out of God's Word but also praying as you come into this room that you would have an open heart for what God's Word would have to say to us because we want God's Word to challenge us, don't we? And so Second Corinthians 8 um, and verses 8 and 9. And I'm going to be popping around. There's going to be verses, a lot of verses up uh, on the screen. And I'm not going to read quite yet. Uh, let me tell you first just a little bit about my own story before we jump into the text. Um, my upbringing was one where uh, we were often in financially desperate situations. You've heard me tell pockets of my story before where uh, I was an only child. My father was disabled uh, when I was nine years old, and, and that was it for him for working. Uh, and uh, he was the primary breadwinner. My mom uh, had a 10th grade education, and that was it. But she became the primary breadwinner at that point. And as you know, with a 10th grade education, there's, there's oftentimes a ceiling with regards to earning potential. Um, now, I will say this. My mother is one of my heroes because she uh, was one who just worked herself to the bone to make sure we ate right? And the power stayed on and, and what have you. And so uh, my mother uh, was and is, continues to be such a gift and a, a hero in my life. But, but I tell you all this not to be, you know, a sob story, not to say, oh, my life was really hard. I know some of you face uh, obstacles that are far greater than that. But I, I tell you that because um, very early on, I had a front row seat to something uh, unique, and, and it was receiving the generosity of other people. In fact, uh, even back then, I recognized it as being a grace, right? Something that we did not necessarily deserve, but something that utterly changed our lives, sometimes week to week growing up. There was the time where uh, my dad needed a procedure in Cleveland, and we just couldn't get there because uh, our car had broken down. It was held together by tinfoil and duct tape, uh, basically. And we couldn't afford to repair it or to stay in the hotel to be with my dad for this life-saving procedure. And we uh, were at the end of ourselves, and then a friend wrote us a $5,000 check. Or there was those moments where family names, when I hear them, warm my heart. The Harolds and the Kuipers and the Sherwoods and the Zamatuses, who were people who came alongside of me as a teenager and gave me opportunities to do something like go on a beach vacation that would not have been possible, or to go skiing or on one of our sporting events to say, hey, I know times are tough. Here, you can uh, buy something as we're on this trip with the basketball team. And so time and time again, I saw the mercy and the grace uh, demonstrated towards us through the generosity of other people. Let me give you the context of where we're going to be coming out of today. As we read this text, what is happening and what has happened uh, in the years prior to Paul writing this in 56 AD is there was a a famine in, in around Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem were literally starving. They were starving. You know, and in an agricultural society, not only was uh, food uh, what you ate, it was also your income. And so they were desperate. 
And so in the years uh, that followed or during this famine, uh, while they were in constant need of the grace of others, of the generosity of others, Paul went around to um, other churches. So the church in Jerusalem were largely converts from Judaism to Christianity. Well, Paul went outside of that region to Gentile or uh, non-Jewish convert areas, and he took up many collections over the years for this church in Jerusalem. Some examples, Acts 11, Romans 15 in the church in Rome, 1 Corinthians' uh, earlier letter to the church in Corinth, uh, and in Galatia, in Galatians 2. We see Paul receiving an offering for this church in Jerusalem over and over again, and that's what we're going to be reading today. Now, if you've been here or been listening, uh, what you know is Paul has a rocky relationship with this church in Corinth, right? We know that by now, right? They, they didn't necessarily like him. They didn't think his apostleship was legit. There had been repentance, as we talked about last week. And all of a sudden, in chapters 8 and 9, you know what he starts talking about? Money. Money. Does that make sense? Like, if, if you're struggling relationally with somebody, do, do you usually start talking about money and generosity? No, we don't, right? Ever. But Paul does. Paul takes that risk. Why on earth would Paul do such a thing? You know, we just read, uh, Sam just read to us uh, where Jesus' words say, where our treasure is, that is where our heart will be also. Paul seems convinced that, that an urgent aspect of our Christian discipleship, if we have placed our faith in Jesus, isn't just how we live our lives and speak and, and how we think, but, but it's how we give. It's our generosity, because our hearts follow after those things. And I think just like back then in Corinth, uh, similar to now, our hearts and our attitudes towards our money are constantly being shaped. Do you know your heart is constantly being shaped right now about how you relate to your money? Here's a spectrum, the pandemic spectrum of money, right? What are the ends of the spectrum? You've got the, uh uh-uh, this is dangerous, life is dangerous, I'm going to hoard it in my doomsday bunker, right? That's one end of the spectrum. What's the other one? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Or how about this? in our hyper-individualistic culture, and we're no longer individualistic, we are hyper-individualists. We are now officially in the my culture, my freedoms, my rights, my comforts, my stuff. Hands off. We're being shaped by that constantly. Or what about the false generosity model, right? As we see images of people who don't have as much as we are, we assuage the guilt and shame we might feel by giving it away. We just kind of feel a little bit of pressure relief. Or we give it away for pride. So we can compare ourselves to another person and say, but I give away 30%, I give away 20%. Go me, right? Friends, I'm not saying we all land in any of those places. I I say we probably are being shaped by all of those ideals in some way, shape, or form. But, But what I think Paul would show us here and what Jesus would show us in the rest of his teachings on money is that those are false Uh, ways of interacting with our money. Those are not gospel-centered ways of interacting with our stuff. Paul today is going to point Corinth, and hopefully ourselves, to looking at um, our stuff through the eyes of grace, through generosity as being a grace. 
And so I gave you a full outline in the bulletin and in the app. Again, we're going to be moving quickly through two chapters here today. But the first point uh, I want us to look at as we read the text and jump in is he wants him to understand that generosity equals an act of grace. And so pick up with me in 8, 1 to 7. Paul writes this, and listen for the term grace as we read. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he started, so he would complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see to it that you excel in this act of grace also. Let me pray for us as we get into the text this morning. Well, Lord, where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be. I pray this morning that by your Spirit and by your Word, that you will just help us to evaluate where our treasure is. If it's not with you, would you meet us in that moment with your grace, and by your grace transform us into those who are generous, those who are open-handed with our stuff. Holy Spirit, that is solely an act of you in my heart and in the hearts of every one of us watching here today. But, but we pray that you'll do it. You can do abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. Through this, will you make us a generous people? I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so this first bullet point, generosity equals an act of grace. So here's what's happening. Uh, Paul is, uh, so they've started a collection, right, back in 1 Corinthians 16. They start this collection for the saints who are in Jerusalem. But it didn't necessarily get finished. And so Paul is, is re-upping this topic here today. And what he uses as an example of grace are the churches in Macedonia. All right, so the churches in Macedonia, we find them in Acts 16 and 17. These are churches like Philippi, the letter to the Philippians, or Thessalonica, uh, the letter to the Thessalonians, right? And these are churches that is pretty well documented to have been going through extreme persecution and as a result, living in poverty. Yet they were being super generous uh, in giving to these brothers and sisters who were starving in Jerusalem. And so Paul uses them as an example for the church in Corinth, saying, hey, let's, let's take back up this collection for the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And we learn a lot about how uh, this church in Macedonia viewed generosity. I told you to tune your ear to the term grace. Did you hear it? In verses 1, 6, and 7, they talked about the grace of God that has been given. In 6, this act of grace, of being generous. In in, uh, verse 7, excelling in this act of grace. In the Greek, you can't see it in the English, but in verse 4, you'll see the term favor. That is also the Greek term charis, which means grace. And so often we will think of the idea of grace as being something coming just from God to us. But, but what uh, the church in Macedonia was saying is, hey, uh, as this grace overflows to us, it bubbles out of us towards others. They're actually saying, hey, give us the favor, the grace ourselves of being able to show grace to them. 
The church in Jerusalem was in a place of desperate need. Now we can also see a term in verse 4 that says relief. That term relief in the Greek is diakonia. What does that sound like? Deacon, diaconate, right? And so the church in Macedonia is saying, hey, help us meet the diaconal needs of these people. Diaconal needs, uh, diakonia means ministry, service, or relief. It's been really encouraging for me that one of the most prolific ministries in and through our church since the beginning of the pandemic is our food pantry. You know, Diane Fisher and the many of you who have volunteered there have been able to meet the needs of another church here in the area who were going through a unique, difficult time. Also meeting the needs of brothers and sisters within this body of Christ and those outside of this body who have never placed their faith in Jesus. But uh, we have been able to demonstrate tangible gifts and giving in the name of Christ to bring relief. That's the type of thing that's in view here. I thought verse 7 was fascinating as well, where uh, he basically says, you excel in a lot of things, in knowledge or your theology, in your earnestness, which is their civic or religious duties or their duties of justice or their moral obligations, saying you excel in those areas. Also in your speech, you excel in speech. You watch what you say. Isn't that a gift, right? We, We need to learn from Corinth to watch how we speak in verbal communication or typing communication. He's saying, y'all are doing well in that, but don't neglect your generosity as well. It's just as critical as any of these other areas of our knowledge and theology and speech and, and our behavior. And so that's the first point, is this idea of generosity as an act of grace. For them, generosity wasn't a, a burden. It wasn't obligatory. It wasn't hard. It wasn't secondary. It wasn't the leftovers. It wasn't when I have the margin. It was solely focused on others and them saying, this is a favor to us to be able to give. Do we interact with our stuff that way? I'm certainly challenged by that. How do they get there? How on earth do we get to that point where we are viewing the giving away of our stuff as grace? Well, that's the second point. We're going to look at the motive of generosity. And really, friends, this is what makes this sermon Christian. I could tell you, go and be generous and close in prayer, and that's not necessarily a Christian sermon. <laughs> the motive and what Paul writes here behind our generosity is what makes this a Christian message. So here it is, and this is where I'm going to start working off the screen a good bit. 2 Corinthians 8, 8 and 9. So Paul jumps in and he says this, I say this not as a command, which I just thought that was a fascinating line as he's uh, asking them to be generous. He's saying, I'm actually not commanding you to do this. But he actually says, I want you to look somewhere to uh, encourage you, to motivate you to be gracious. And he looks at verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty, might become rich. You see, Paul goes from the spiritual saying, hey, uh, Jesus Christ was rich in his glory next to his father, and he humbled himself and became poor in many ways, right? So physically, we do see him kind of in a poverty category, uh, going from sitting in the riches and glory of heaven to being born in a manger and not having anywhere to lay his head. But I think most critical here, we see a spiritual poverty. 
where he came down to earth, where he emptied himself on the cross, where he took the punishment of the cross on our behalf when we didn't deserve it, so that we, in our spiritual poverty, would become rich both now and for all of eternity. He's saying, when you find yourself unable to be generous, stare at the generosity of Jesus. This idea of of spiritual language mixed with uh, money language is not uh, unique to this passage. In fact, Paul writes about it again in Ephesians 2. He says, But God being rich, there it is, in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in debt, impoverished spiritually in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Rich in mercy, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness that are ever before us. Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan, and the Puritans in general loved this passage. And and Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote this as he talked about, well, when he preached, he would often talk about the purpose of why we were created. Why humankind was ever created. And he he usually, and he lands on uh, the point of, it's for God's glory. Let me read you a quote uh, from Edwards. Now, bear with it, old language, right? He, He, you know, he's been dead for a very long time. But he says, he says this, talking about why we were made. He said, we were made for the eternal son, that the eternal son of God might obtain a spouse. That's the church, the ones he laid his life down for, those who would receive him by faith, towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence, benevolence being a disposition to be kind and good, of his nature, and to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all the immense fountain of condescension, that means lowering himself, love and grace that was in his heart and that in this way, God might be glorified. All right, let me, let me make it plain, right? That's a lot of words. Here's what he's saying. Uh, he shows us the what of our creation, right? We were created to glorify God, but he talks about the how, how God is glorified. And he's basically saying um, God's glorified as he watches his son lay down his life for his bride, be generous towards his bride, pour out, lavish like a fountain, his love and grace on us forever. Dane Ortland, uh, an author, gives this picture of, of Jesus here in this passage being like this uh, crouched coil of compassion ready to spring towards us. That is his posture towards us. Or this dammed up, engorged river that's overflowing and being held back, but God, uh, through Jesus Christ, unloading all of that torrent of his grace and goodness and mercy and love and kindness towards us. And that is his current posture towards us now. What Paul is saying to Corinth, and I think he's saying to us, is if we understood the riches of Christ coiled and ready to spring towards us at any moment, then as that grace overflows to us, we have no choice but to respond in that same disposition of benevolence, and wanting to spring towards others in generosity and kindness and love and goodness. I envision a fountain, right, that's bubbling out at the top and it goes to that next level and fills it up and it bubbles over to the next level. And he's saying, 
when we understand God's grace towards us, that overflowing towards one another with our stuff, with our time, with our talent, is what happens. Friends, now more than ever, I am convinced that we live out of what we believe. And if we believe our God is stingy towards us, guess what? We're going to be like this with our stuff. But if we believe that he is constantly in a posture of benevolence and overflowing with love for us, it will crowbar our hands like this towards others. Note that the motivation here wasn't duty. It wasn't guilt. It wasn't shame. It wasn't to make ourselves feel better in the moment. It was a response to his mercy that while we were yet sinners, God paid our debt and was generous to us. You've got to move quickly now. Benefits of generosity. I'm going to touch briefly on this. because uh, So here's a part of this passage. Paul says, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And I would say over the course of history of the church, people misinterpret that and treat God as a slot machine. We'll say, if I put the coins in the God machine and pull the crank, eventually I'm going to hit jackpot so I can get rich, and God, I promise I'll give some stuff away to the poor. I mean, that's, kind of, that's the health and wealth gospel model, and that's a lie. In fact, as we read our Bibles, it's good for us to keep going and not just lift a verse out. In fact, if you just keep going to verse 10, it says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. And listen to this. Increase the harvest of your righteousness. Is he saying if you sow, then you're just going to get filthy rich? No. He's saying as we are generous... There is an increase of a harvest in our lives, but it's a harvest of righteousness, which in short is saying you will grow to look more and more like Jesus as we are generous. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what he works out in us. In fact, verse 10 there, he's actually quoting Isaiah 55.10. And and, and again, as we are good students of our Bibles, where we see the Old Testament or any other place in Scripture quoted, it's a good idea to go back and read the context of where he's writing. Because if we read Isaiah 55, do you know what's happening? God's people are in exile. They're being punished, right, for their active rebellion for years. But Isaiah 55 is a super hopeful passage where he's saying, my word won't return void. In fact, I am doing a redemptive work, and one day you are going to feast fully on God's bounty. And he's telling them, see yourselves as active participants of this unfolding narrative of redemption. And I think what Paul's getting at here is he's saying, as you give, see yourself as an active participant of God's work of redemption, of that narrative that we are already caught up in if we have placed our faith in Christ. When we give, that is the action that we are doing through our generosity. We are cooperating with God's story of redemption as we, yes, relieve people's suffering, and yes, as we do the work of the gospel and give in Jesus' name. Here's the other thing, just to name real quick, 2 Corinthians 8.15. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. You know, this is what God's way of saying, as you're generous, I'm going to continue to provide for you. 
That's a direct quote out of Exodus 15, 18, where the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and gathering manna, and they were only to gather enough for that 24-hour period. No more, no less. And God is saying, uh, I am generous. I will provide for your every need. And Paul is saying, as you give, he continues to provide for you. All right, so let me just get real practical for just a few moments and talk about the way of generosity because in this passage we see at least some principles that God gives us of ways to be generous, ways to even protect it in our hearts from becoming something that is uh, an unchristian form of generosity. The first is give first to the Lord. As we're giving of, of our financial goods, our material goods, he's saying Give first to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 8, 5, talking about the churches in Macedonia, he said, uh, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So oftentimes our sinful hearts want to give as a show for other people. But he's saying one of the ways you protect this from becoming an act of self-righteousness is to give according to the audience of one, right? To borrow from Carson Wentz and other people who use this, of, of considering first, Lord, I want to give as unto you. And so that's the first place he starts, is saying, consider how the Lord would have you give. Uh, you know, Jesus talks about not letting the right hand know what the left hand is doing, right? We don't give for show. The second thing we see is it says, give according to our means. Second Corinthians 8.3, it's saying the church of Macedonia gave according to to their means. And in 8.12, it says, if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And so, friends, there are some churches and religions that would say, hey, you know, pass the plate again. You haven't given enough. Keep giving and sometimes creating poverty. And I would say that's evil. God doesn't even demand that of his people. Now, here's the positive side of that, or another way of looking at it, is giving according to our means. We love percentages. You know, we're like, give me a percentage gamage that I can feel better about myself, right? Uh, and, 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 you know, that doesn't work out so well either. According to our means, you know, you think about, uh, you know, single mom working three jobs with three kids. Uh, you know, maybe 1% is all they can give before God. Versus Bryce Harper, he can probably give a little more than 10%, right? Right? Uh, or Patrick Mahomes. I'm not knocking those brothers. I don't know what they give. Uh, I don't even know if they give, right? So, but I'm just saying, relatively, uh, we need to always be before the Lord and saying, Lord, <laughs> how am I able? What are my means? How would you call me to be generous? Now, here's the hard part. There's a picture here of giving according to our means, but there's also a picture of giving beyond our means. Ugh. Church in Macedonia gave beyond their means. Now, again, I know y'all would love to give me to give you a percentage. Anthony, what, what is the percentage? What's my starting point, right? Uh, and, and I would just say, as I've wrestled, as I read the, the full counsel of God's Word, I like to lean into the 10%, uh, but, but I'm going to give you the, like, ironclad percentage. Are you ready? Are you ready? You ready? Jesus. That's not a number, right? But Jesus. What's the picture of generosity that we see here? It's Jesus. Jesus wasn't sitting next to the Father with his abacus or his TI-85 scientific calculator. He didn't turn his iPhone sideways and, and figure out, what's 10% I can give to these people? I'm going to give them my leg, right? That's not what Jesus did. He said, I'm going to give 100% of me and lay my life down 
for them. He wants us. God wants us, not a percentage. He wants us to wrestle with him in prayer, in discipleship, in relationship. To say, God, how would you make me generous like you were generous towards me? Now, let me just say this. My brother reminded me of this this week. Generosity isn't just about money. <laughs> it is here. But it's also about our time and our talents. Friends, if we're in a place where we can't be generous monetarily, ask the Lord how you can be generous in other ways. How to alleviate financial suffering for other people. Host somebody in your house. So many of you have done that. There's an art teacher in our church who has spent so much time using their art to disciple uh, our women and our kids. Be generous in all the areas of our life and ask the Lord how the Lord may cause us to do that. Be generous to the church. Friends, be generous through the church. I would argue in Scripture that's the primary form of generosity that we see, not the only. And I'm not just saying that because the church pays me. I'm not saying that because we're behind budget. I say it because I believe it and I see it in Scripture. And as we give, we are raising funds for the work of the gospel. Alleviation of poverty, discipleship of our children, discipleship of women and children, and and outreach. Between now and lunch, you're going to get 50 other uh, people saying, hey, be generous to our company, right? And so what I would just say is keep the church on the front of your hearts and minds as you give, but also be generous everywhere else, outside of the church, to the parachurch, to your neighbors. Can I also push us with this? Can we make this an aspect of our community and discipleship? We are so scared to talk about our money with one another. It's part of our me culture, my culture. I I think when Paul said, hey, um, you're worried about your theology, you're worried about your speech, and we talk about some of those things in our discipleship, but we rarely talk about our money. Can we just work that in as part of our discipleship? I think God would call us to that. Right? Not to brag, right? But just to say, brothers, sisters, I I need your prayer that God would make me generous. Let me end with this story, um, only because I got to spend some time with this brother recently. I've shared this before, but it just fits here, so I'm going to use it again. Uh, When my dad, near the end of his life, uh, had uh, accrued some uh, debt, he was living with us, he was single at the time, a a brother in that church that we were going to called me, I'm going to call him Mike, and he said, you know, Anthony, I want to I befriend your dad. He was a shut-in, uh, again, disabled. And, and I said, that's great, Mike. You, you know, go befriend my dad. He would love it. Uh, and then he said, hey, there's one other thing I'd love to do. And I just said, what? He said, you know, I know the deacons are helping with utility bills, and I know they're helping with food, but, but I know they're not able to help with some of his debt. And he said, so I would like to actually, over the course of time, pay his credit card debt. And I said, Mike... That's great, man. Thanks a lot. But you know, he accrued that debt in a very unwise way. We warned him about something, and he did it anyway. And, 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 he go, and, and I just said, so you may not want to do that. I'm just letting you know. And he corrected me so gently. And he said, Anthony, I appreciate you looking out for me and the stewardship of my money. He said, but when I think about the gospel, Jesus paid my debt when I accrued it in some pretty boneheaded ways. And he said, and he still paid it anyway. He goes, I'd love to take a risk and to pay that off, to demonstrate the gospel to him. As I think about that moment, when I think about generosity, 
Mike is the picture that comes to my mind. Because he got Jesus' generous grace towards him. And as a result, that made him graciously generous towards my father, towards me. And it really went a long way in changing my father's spiritual trajectory. That's why God calls us to be generous, to be those vessels of grace, having received it first from him. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, simply put, make us generous. Make us generous. Lord, where we see a stingy God, correct us gently and make us see you being that coiled spring ever ready to spring towards us in your riches towards us. And Father, if there are those watching or who are here today who have never engaged with your generosity towards us, that grace. Father, I ask that they would cry out to you right now and say, Jesus, I am spiritually bankrupt without you. But you offered me billions and billions of dollars of your righteousness on the cross and through your resurrection. Lord, would you cause those hearts to call on you in faith today? We pray these things in your name. Amen.